Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. He doesn't have a bipartisan bill. Nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, September 9th, 2014. Welcome back from Labor Day week. I'll begin this week's podcast with a recap of a speech on tax reform that Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu gave yesterday, and I have a reminder about Congress's somewhat brief return to Washington, D.C. In our New Markets Tax Credit section, I discuss the latest Qualified Equity Investment Initiatives Report from the Community Development Finance Institutions Fund, and provide a little more information about the California New Market Tax Credit Program Bill that is awaiting Governor Brown's signature. In our Historic Tax Credit segment, I share more information about the California Historic Tax Credit Program Bill that has been sent to Governor Brown. I also share information about changes to Delaware's Historic Tax Credit Program. In our Local Housing Tax Credit section, I alert listeners to proposed multifamily housing goals for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and discuss a report from the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies and the AARP Foundation about the growing need for affordable senior housing. And I'll wrap up today with our Renewable Energy Tax Credit segment. In that segment, I'll discuss a report that, not too surprisingly, attributes the growth of jobs in the wind energy sector to the production tax credit. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, I'd like to share a little of Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu's speech on tax reform. He gave the speech at the Tax Policy Center yesterday. Although the Treasury billed the speech as focusing on business tax reform, the focus of the speech actually quickly turned to the issue of corporate inversions. Secretary Liu said that while the best way to address inversions is through comprehensive business tax reform, the Treasury would not wait for congressional action. Liu did not reveal any additional administration tax reform proposals. Rather, he repeated prior Treasury statements on tax reform, including a call for a top rate of 28%. Now, regarding Treasury Department action on corporate inversions, Liu said, quote, We plan to make a decision in the very near future. Any action we take will have a strong legal and policy basis, but will not be a substitute for meaningful legislation. It can only address part of the economics, end quote. A panel discussion followed the speech, and that, too, was heavily focused on corporate inversions. One panelist, GE's John Samuels, called for policymakers to make inversions less attractive by enacting corporate tax reform. He thought it likely that comprehensive business tax reform would happen in the next legislative session. It will be interesting to see what Treasury does on corporate inversions, and I'll be following Treasury's work on this issue, particularly to the extent it has an impact on affordable housing, community development, renewable energy, or stark preservation. I note that any direct meaningful impact is currently considered unlikely. And I'll bring you an update when Treasury releases its regulatory action with some additional comments on its
particular impact in the areas that are the focus of this podcast. Speaking of Congress, the House and the Senate returned from their district and state work periods yesterday. At the time of this recording, there were no committee hearings scheduled to discuss the fiscal year 2015 budget or appropriations. I note, though, that the start of the next fiscal year, October 1st, is only three weeks away. As such, we expect the House and the Senate to introduce a continuing resolution to extend government funding to the middle of December. We also note that the House and the Senate are only in session for a few weeks, and then they're expected to go back to their respective states and districts and work on re-election between now and the November elections. Of note, last week, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy did say that the House would be sending several tax extenders bills to the Senate before the end of the year. This includes legislation to make bonus depreciation a permanent part of the tax code. Additionally, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid said in a September 4th speech that he would call for a vote on the tax extenders package before the end of the year. That bill would retroactively reinstate more than 50 expired tax provisions. These include the Wind Production Tax Credit and the New Markets Tax Credit, as well as the Senate bill has extension of the 9% floor for the low-income housing tax credit. I'll be keeping an eye on these, and I'll update you on any relevant discussions in next week's podcast. Also, lastly, as a precursor to early next year, the national debt limit suspension expires March of 2015. So what does this mean? Well, once we get past a lame duck session at the end of this calendar year, and we start a new Congress in January, extending the debt ceiling will once again be high on the congressional must-do list. In new market tax credit news, the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund released its latest Qualified Equity Investment Issuance Report on September 2nd. Among other things, the monthly report identifies the total dollar amount finalized by new market tax credit allocatees, as well as the amount remaining to be issued. About $75 million of Qualified Equity Investments, or QEIs, were finalized in August. That's about $14 million less than the amount finalized in July. As of September 2nd, the amount still available and new market tax allocation authority is about $4.4 billion. Much of that is already likely unofficially committed and will be closing in the coming months. We also know that for much of this allocation, signed allocation agreements were only recently released by many allocatees. In prior years, right now, there would be a bit of a rush to close transactions prior to the due date of the current new market tax rate application round. However, under application rules this year, applicants are limited in their ability to incorporate into their applications transactions closed on or after the release date of the allocation application, and that was August 5, 2014. As such, we're not expecting as large an effort to close QEIs prior to the application due date of October 1st. Now, prior allocatees who are applying for additional allocation will need to issue qualified equity investments by January 30th at a minimum level in order to be eligible for a new allocation of tax credits in the current round. As such, we do expect to see a push to close transactions before the end of this calendar year and January 30th at the latest. Now, if you need help closing a transaction before that deadline, 
I encourage you to contact my partner, Brad Elphick, in our Atlanta, Georgia office. He can be reached at 678-867-2333. In state-level news, I have a great update from California. As I mentioned last week, the California legislature has passed a bill that would establish a state new markets tax credit. That bill would create a 39% credit for qualified investments in low-income areas. It would authorize a cumulative $200 million for the program, and up to $40 million in tax credit authority can be allocated annually until the end of the program in 2027. The bill is now awaiting the governor's signature. Now, he has until September 30th to sign the bill. We note that according to the California Urban Partnership, the New Market Tax Credit Program could spur $500 million in investments in low-income neighborhoods. You can go to www.newmarketscredits.com for the bill text of AB 1399. And even more, for additional information, contact my partner, Owen Gray, in our San Francisco office. As noted in last week's podcast, a California historic tax credit bill is also awaiting Governor Brown's signature. The bill would authorize $50 million a year in tax credits. This includes a $10 million set-aside for smaller projects that have less than $1 million in qualified rehabilitation expenditures. The state of tax credit would generally be worth 20% of qualified expenditures. However, the credit could increase to 25% if the project meets one of the following criteria. It's located on federal or state surplus property. It includes affordable housing. It's located in a designated census tract. It's part of a military-based reuse authority or it's a transit-oriented development. The program would be scheduled to sunset at the end of 2023. I note the governor has until September 30th to sign the bill. To find the bill text of AB 1999, please go to com. I'd like to mention that the bill said economic development incentives are needed after California dissolved its redevelopment agencies in 2012. If signed into law, both the new market tax credit and the historic tax credit bills clearly would attract additional investment dollars to California. Now, if you have any questions, please contact my partner, Owen Gray, in our San Francisco office. Owen can be reached at 415-356-8000. In other state historic tax credit news, I have an update out of Delaware. The Delaware Department of State, Division of Historical and Cultural Affairs, recently amended its historic preservation tax credit program. The amended regulations provide that in each fiscal year, $1.5 million of the $5 million annual program cap is reserved for projects receiving a credit of no more than $300,000. Now, this number was previously set at $2 million. I note, though, that after April 1st, any portion of the $1.5 million that is unassigned will be made available to any eligible project no matter its size. Also, these amendments state that in each fiscal year, $1.5 million of the annual cap 30% is reserved for projects located in downtown development districts. The regulations also say that an applicant may only claim the amount of tax credits which is supported by the actual rehabilitation costs. Finally, these amendments also make various minor editorial changes and clarifications to the regulations. The amendments become effective September 11th, just a few days away. To learn more, go to www.historictaxcredits.com or contact my partner, Charlie Ruda, in our Boston, Massachusetts office. In low-income housing tax credit news, I have an update from the Federal Housing Finance Agency, or FHFA. 
The proposed housing goals for mortgages purchased by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for 2015 through 2017 have been released. The FHFA proposed the goals as part of the Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2018 requirement that FHFA established annual housing goals for the government-sponsored enterprises. The FHFA's current housing goals are effective through the end of 2014. The proposed rule would affect both the single-family and multifamily sectors. That being said, I'll focus solely on the multifamily side. The proposed rule includes benchmark levels for multifamily housing goals and for the first time would establish a sub-goal for small multifamily properties. This applies to developments that have between 5 and 50 units. The FHFA's proposed multifamily benchmark levels would be the same for Fannie Mae and they'd gradually increase for Freddie Mac. The agency said that the goal levels reflect its expectation that the enterprise's market share will decline in the coming years due to the increased participation by the private sector in the multifamily lending market. Now, the low-income families benchmark level for Fannie Mae would stay at 250,000 households through 2017. We note that in 2013, Fannie Mae reported financing 326,597 low-income units. The Freddie Mac benchmark would increase by 10,000 units each year through 2017, when it reaches 230,000 units. We note that in 2013, Freddie Mac reported financing 254,627 low-income units. For the very low-income benchmark, Fannie Mae would stay at 60,000 units through 2017, and in 2013, we note, Fannie Mae financed 78,071 very low-income units. The Freddie Mac benchmark would increase 3,000 units in 2015 and 2016 and 4,000 in 2017. This reflects a cumulative three-year increase of 10,000 units, and that takes it from 40,000 in 2014 to 50,000 units in 2017. We note that in 2013, Freddie Mac financed 56,752 very low-income units. Now, turning to the small property side, the Fannie Mae benchmark would be 20,000 units in 2015, 25,016, and 30,000 in 2017, whereas the Freddie Mac benchmark would increase to 5,000 in 2015, 10,000 in 2016, and 15,000 in 2017. FHFA is requesting comments on all aspects of the proposed rule. Now, these comments are due no later than October 28th. If you have questions, I'd encourage you to contact my partner, Molly O'Dell, in our San Francisco, California office, or reach out to Peter Lawrence in our Washington, D.C. office. In other low-income housing tax credit news, the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies and the AARP Foundation recently released a study identifying a growing need for affordable senior housing. The study is titled, Housing America's Older Adults, Meeting the Needs of an Aging Population. The study found that the number of adults aged 50 and over is expected to grow to 132 million by the year 2030. This is an increase of more than 70% since 2000. However, the study found that housing that is affordable, physically accessible, well-located, and coordinated with support and services is in short supply. It's essential to recognize the implications of this large demographic shift, said the study's authors in a press release. They went on to say that it's also important 
that policymakers across all levels of government ensure that affordable, supportive housing is available for older adults across the income spectrum. The report recognized the role that the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program has played in helping to finance affordable senior housing. The report found that the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program has generated 321,000 units for older renters. 65% of those are new units. That being said, the report notes that more funding is still needed in order to meet the ever-increasing demand for senior housing. Additional tax incentives have been used to encourage universal design in new construction and to defray the cost of adding accessibility features to existing homes. At the state level, Georgia, Virginia, and Pennsylvania offer tax credits for installing accessibility features, according to the study. In addition, the study said that the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, Section 202 program, has become a valuable tool in funding affordable senior housing with supportive services. HUD's Section 202 program has been the primary means of expanding housing with supportive services since it was established back in 1959. According to the report, HUD administrative data indicated that 1.1 million older renters live in either public housing or privately owned developments with unit-based assistance in 2013. This includes roughly 263,000 Section 202 units that provided housing with supportive services for older adults. If you'd like to learn more about the report, go to www.jchs.harvard.edu. Or, if you have any questions, please contact my partner, Lance Smith, in our San Francisco, California office. In renewable energy tax credit news, more than 12,500 U.S. clean energy jobs renounced during the second quarter of this year. About 2,700 of these jobs are in the wind industry. This, according to a recent report by the nonprofit business group Environmental Entrepreneurs, or E2. The report, not so surprisingly, attributes many of those wind industry jobs to projects that began construction last year to qualify for the production tax credit. As you may recall, the production tax credit expired at the end of 2013. The report underscores how important energy tax credits are to spurring job creation. It warned that constant uncertainty about the future of the production tax credit creates boom-and-bust investment cycles. E2 said that long-term extension of the production tax credit could encourage wind companies to maintain jobs indefinitely. The report also noted that 5,300 solar jobs were announced in that same time period. Now, you can find a copy of Clean Energy Works for Us second quarter 2014 report at www.e2.org. And if you have questions about the production tax credit or begin construction tests, please contact my partner, Tony Grapponi, in our Boston office at 617-330-1920. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's report. Join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik & Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www dot novaco dot com